0: Blackbird fly into the dark of the black night sky.
1: The local newspaper, the Arkansas Gazette at that time, uh, indicated that the Brown decision was going to change the face of the South forever. I remember those words. I will not force my people to integrate against their will. None of us of the nine anticipated that the resistance would be as strong as it was. The National Guard was there to bar our entrance and let white students go into the school. It seemed to me that if they were going to all of this trouble to keep me out, there was something bigger than my simply going to class.
0: It was a different start to school than we're used to, wasn't it? 1957, September. Our country was divided by issues of race People of faith were divided about integration. The governor of Arkansas was a lifelong follower of Jesus and a Democrat who barred folks from entering school. The Little Rock Nine got it right. The governor got it wrong. That's what courage looks like. That's what faith can look like. And it was years later when the Beatles, Paul McCartney, wrote these words to the song Blackbird. He wrote it as he thought about the Little Rock Nine and their ability to rise. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life you were waiting for a moment, for this moment to arise. It was years later that McCartney met a couple of the ladies that were part of the Little Rock Nine. Today, the gospel according to the Beatles says, learn to fly, learn to see, learn to arise. Let me take you to the holy words of our scripture from the letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and to the church in Boise, Ephesians chapter 5 verse one and verse two. We put it up on the screen. Read with me these holy words. Let's read them together. Watch what God does and then you do it like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with God and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. Christ's love was not cautious, but extravagant. Christ didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Love like that extravagantly. Extravagantly in a way where we learn to see where well, we understand Christianity is a constant discovery of how, how great God's love is for all, how great God's mercy is for all, how great God's grace is for all, his forgiveness. Maybe we could take these broken wings and fly. Yet as I, I live in this moment, I, I'm troubled by the truth of our country, which seems so, so removed from each other, so divided, So extreme on the left and the right. Just last week I talked to a couple families in our church and they talked about how hard it was mainly for adult children to talk to adult parents in this life. Mostly because of politics. Wow. How do we fly? I mean, how do we take this gospel according to the Beatles and arise? Well, let's do what the text said. It said, watch what God does and do that. So here's the words of the gospel today, the gospel of John chapter four, a very familiar story, verse three through nine. Jesus left Judea and he started for Galilee again. This time he had to go through Samaria and on his way, he came to the town of Sachar. It was near the field that Jacob had long ago given to his son, Joseph. The well that Jacob had dug was still there. And Jesus sat down because, it was, because he was tired from traveling. I love that verse. Jesus got tired. Don't you love that? It validates most of us, doesn't it? He sat down because he was tired from traveling. It was noon. And after Jesus' disciples had gone into town to buy some food, a Samaritan woman came to draw water from the well. Jesus asked her, would you please give me a drink of water? You are a Jew, she replied, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink of water when Jews and Samaritans won't have anything to do with each other? We're gonna just stop right there for the moment. I love her question. How can you, a Democrat, ask me a Republican for a drink? How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? How can people who are different interact? Now John gives us some insights. He gives us a little parenthetical moment where he just says to us, in case we didn't understand, Jews and Samaritans don't get along. Isn't that interesting? Is this the old north versus south reality? The Jews are in the south, the Samaritans are in the north, and they talk funny. Is it it that? Is it more than that? Is it, I mean, how can it be so hard for Jews and Samaritans to get along? They both claim Father Abraham as their father. They both claim the Torah as their scripture. How is it that Jews... And Samaritans don't get along. Well, there's some differences. They worship different. Some worship at the 10 o'clock service. It's contemporary. (laughs) And some worship in the traditional service. It's traditional. Some worshiped in Jerusalem. The Jews worshiped in Jerusalem. The, The Samaritans worshiped at Mount Grism. So there's a difference in worship. If you ask either of them, they both would say we're the pure group. We're the true worshipers. Even today, if you ask Jews, what would you tell me about Samaritans? Because they exist today. They would say they're kind of our distant religious cousins. And if you ask Samaritans about Jews, they would say they're not like us. And they probably wouldn't even claim them as family. Our Methodist brother Nelson Mandela put it like this, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or their background or their religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Why are we still teaching hate? I mean, just this weekend in Ohio during a political campaign, a, a candidate stood up and said this. He quoted Paul, Ephesians chapter 6. that says, put on the full armor of God. Good quote. But then he changed the end of it, which says, which will keep you from evil. And he changed it to, which will keep you from the left. Why are we still teaching hate let me give you a map of Judea and Samaria. So you get a sense of where we are. So in Israel, Samaria is to the north. We're north of Jerusalem, south of Galilee. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jacob's well is in Saqqar or modern Nablus. Some of you have been there. There's a, I've got a picture of Jacob's well. It's still there. You can go today. And the last time we were there, Kathy, that's uh, is cranking the well. You can still draw water from Jacob's well if you're there. And if you are bold, you could drink that water. (laughs) Jerusalem and Sakkar aren't that far apart. 35 miles, kind of like Baltimore and Washington, not that far apart. How can hate exist at this level when we're so close? I Googled, uh, how do you get there today? I, I did this the other day. I go, and there's the current map. If you Google it, this is how you get from Jerusalem to Scar. It says it's about an hour and 35 minutes, 115 kilometers. I'm like, it's only 35 miles. Why are, they, why are they taking us all the way around to come in? Could it be that, well, maybe the other road's a little more mountainous? Or could it be that if you went straight through, you'd have to go through more Palestinian territory. I mean, if you drive into Palestinian territory, you pass the sign today that says, this is illegal if you're an Israeli citizen. This is dangerous to your life. Why are we still teaching hate? This religious hatred is not just in the Gospel of John. You see it even in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 52. Jesus, Jesus sent messengers into a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival, but the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. They're going to the wrong religious place. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? I mean, isn't that amazing? After walking with the Prince of Peace for multiple years, your first thought when you hit opposition is, can we get God to murder them? Really? Just when you wonder how it is that the disciples who've walked with Jesus can be so clueless, let me ask, shall we teach hate? Shall we fight the libraries to ban books that challenge us? Shall we stack the deck of the school board for our own religious agenda? Shall we call out the National Guard to stop those kids from attending school that are different? Shall we take away a person's right to choose because it makes us religiously uncomfortable? Must we teach hate? I love Jesus' response in the message. In Luke chapter 9, verse 55, look at this response. Jesus Turned on them. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I, I, I double checked it because I was like, did I get that right? Jesus turned on them. Of course not. He said, let's just keep traveling. I mean, sometimes when you realize the opposition is there and they're not open to conversation, sometimes you just got to keep traveling. The tensions between the religious, it's real. The tensions between the races, it's real. The tension between the genders, it was real and it still is. How how does Jesus learn to fly? Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritans but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. How do we get from Jesus' prohibitive text here, do not go to those people, to I have to go to Samaria? That's what John wrote, he had to go through Samaria. Could it be Jesus was open to discovery that even though perhaps his religion taught him to, to look at Samaritans with suspicion to even hate them, that he encountered Samaritans that reminded him, everyone you meet is made in the image of God. Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 13. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, master, Have mercy on us. Notice Jesus doesn't reply by going, no problem, Samaritans to the right, Jews to the left. No. If you stay in that story, Jesus says to all of them, go show yourself to the priest. Now, they haven't been healed yet. Go show yourself to the priest. This is an act of faith. You show yourself to the priest when you're healed so you can be restored to community, so you can come back into worship. So they begin the journey to show themselves to the priest and healing comes. And when healing comes, one of them stops. And one of them returns to Jesus to say, thank you. And the Gospel writer makes sure we know the one who returned was a Samaritan. Could it be as Jesus encountered the people of God, he even encountered the people of God as Samaritans? I mean, we know what it was like for Jesus when He tried to help us understand all people are God's people. when He tells us the story of loving our neighbor, and he says, "The one who loved the neighbor was a good Samaritan." Could it be his interaction with those who practice life different, with those who worship different, who, those who heard the scripture differently, with those who even thought of God differently, because he experienced him, he learned to fly. Are we, are we willing to engage those on the other extreme? Are we willing to listen, to attempt conversation? It's not easy. A few months ago, I had the privilege of going and sitting with a political candidate way on the other side. A friend was having a house party and said, I can't get anybody to come. Would you come? I said, who is it? They said, I'm in Bundy. I said, I'd be glad to come. <laughs> you know, he's a dad. He's a husband. We dialogued. I don't know that we moved the mark. But we were both willing to be in the same room. Maybe. That's how it begins. I love this story from the Gospel of John. I love the story that Jesus and the Samaritan woman encounter each other. They both learn to fly. They both learn to see. They're willing to encounter beyond the, the borders of the day. She is amazing. She will not be defined by her community. She will not be defined by a preacher or commentators gossip about her. She will not be defined by multiple relationships which are revealed in her conversation with Jesus. Jesus says, the man you're with now is not your husband and you've had five husbands. But notice he doesn't go, and because of that, I can't talk to you. He continues the conversation, and I would argue she becomes the first evangelist in the book of John. She'll go and tell the whole town what she's heard about Jesus and the text says they all believe because of her testimony. Wow. It could be she's alone at the well because she is rising. She's chosen not to participate in a community that takes her down or gossips about her or judges her. So she comes alone because in the ancient world, we recognize women had no mechanism to upgrade their husbands. They were property. We see it even today, hints of it, as we come to a wedding, and occasionally you still hear that ancient phrase, who gives this woman to be married to this man? It's a reminder of days gone by when a woman was property and were transferring ownership. Maybe she had multiple husbands die. Maybe she had some husbands die and some give her divorce. We know the one she's with now will not commit to her. More likely than not, she's just a victim of her own reality. And we still live in a world where the victim often is asked to carry the shame. Yet she persists. She crosses barriers. She crosses religious barriers. She crosses cultural, ethnic, gender barriers to have a conversation with Jesus. Discovering the love of God, it leads to self-love. Love God, love self, love your neighbor. If we're to rise like Jesus, perhaps we have to follow the gospel according to the Beatles. Learn to fly, learn to see, arise. Let me give you a couple action steps today as we attempt to say, God, help us do this. This is not easy. Here's the first one. Love gives. Last Monday, I had the privilege to go over and work in our food pantry at the Amity Campus. Every Monday from about 5 o'clock to 7.30, we serve folks in our community that are in need of food. We give them fresh milk and bread and meats and fresh produce and canned goods, And you can be a part of that too. You can be a part of it by serving. You could do what I did. I just showed up and said, Put me in, coach. Where do you need me? And then, about 10 minutes of training, I was a shopper with one of the families. You could carry the groceries to the car. You could say, You know what? I'm not trying to do either one of those. You could then help provide the groceries. We get a lot from our local grocery stores when they're right at the edge of the date. They give us a lot of things we can use. But we also provide cereal. We provide canned meats. You can drop it off here or order it and send it to the Amity campus. If you're interested in serving in that ministry or want more information, you can send me an email if you want at pastor at boisefumc.org. Pastor at boisefumc.org. I'll get you connected. Love gives. Last week we served 37 families that night. Seven of them were brand new; they had never been there. And just like this barrier that Jesus crossed with this woman, there were a couple Muslim families there. And I forgot that um, you don't necessarily shake hands with a Muslim woman, right? So I'm introducing myself: Hi, I'm Dwayne, and she's like, "Hello." And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot my cultural competency. You know, I I had to learn that, yep, that's not a thing we do. But we can share in serving, can't we? We can share in the love of God. We're both from the Abrahamic faith. Love serves. So I invite you to think about serving with friendship feasts. We got a video to tell you a little bit
2: more. I'm Belinda Corbett, and I co-cook with my husband, Max, at the Friendship Feast.
1: My wife and I, Belinda, we decided uh, several months ago last year that uh, we wanted to help more in the Friendship Feast, and so we took the leap and decided we wanted to be cooks.
2: It is a little nerve-wracking. You're worried that you might not fix enough or you might fail at what you're doing, but it didn't take long. It was just a couple times, and we were very comfortable with what we're doing. We, this no problem at all. Well, I think we
1: we enjoy to cook, and for family or friends, or whether it's a bigger gathering, and just enjoy being around the kitchen and so forth. And uh, we wanted to help. Uh, We're both retired, and so just mission work. And so we kind of first started with just, you know, helping with the prep team. And and we had also done it several years ago at Thanksgiving time. There were big, big gatherings that we would help uh, just, you know, the prepping, washing the dishes or whatever. and I got to thinking that, you know, they, I know they needed cooks, and we just, you know, let's, let's think about taking the next step in being cooks. And uh, so that was uh, that was our thought process and stepping into it, which was a big step.
2: Well, I first suggest that you start out as a preparer. So you get in the kitchen, you get comfortable about where the all the tools for cooking are. You get comfortable about the whole process, and you do that several times, and you kind of shadow the cook and ask as many questions as you want. Everybody that cooks is willing to provide their expertise and help as much as possible because it is like a team effort, a group effort. Everybody's part of the team.
1: I do We enjoy the shopping. I enjoy the shopping uh, just for us at home. Uh, So it's a little bit of a a planning. What we would normally do, we would come down the week of, early in the week, and see what was all here at the church had. There's a lot of times they have a lot of extra things. One of the biggest things they have is rice all the time. So we want to take advantage of what others had brought before, and they had left over that we could then, you know, take that and use that in our meal planning. So we'd kind of look at that first, and then we always, we'd always have an idea that, okay, what do we want to fix, how, what meal do we want to prepare, and things to add to it, and then we would go shopping, you know, during the week.
2: I'm Belinda Corbett.
1: Max Corbett, and I, I am, am the, the church.
0: church. So love gives, love serves, and love includes. One of the things that's coming in just a couple weeks, a number of our small groups are starting Sunday school classes, small groups in the building, some in the community. This is a way to get connected with someone to beyond worship. How do you get connected in a church like this? Well, you join a ministry like the choir. You connect in a small group. You serve in a ministry. I encourage you to consider. Stop in the lobby. There's a new booklet out there. They'll be glad to share more with you. Pray with me. God, thank you for this great old song, Blackbird. Thank you for those who are willing to rise, to fly, to see. May we be so bold to do that. Give us the courage to stay at the table, to be in the conversation. Give us the courage to know when it's time to just... Go to the next town, not call down fire from heaven on our opponent or those we disagree with. Give us the wisdom to live like Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Fly into the dark of the black night sky.